King Saul is gone. He's taken his own life. Now, it's important for us to understand in our story of First and Second Samuel, it's important for us to know that it was never God's first choice to place Saul on the throne. That was the people's choice. It's ultimately what they wanted. Seeing King Saul's reign in First and Second Samuel really represents what the kingdom of the world looks like, not the kingdom of God. It doesn't represent a kingdom that is led by divine guidance, but rather a kingdom that is led by one's own selfish ambition. But yet God still allowed him to go to the throne, but not without first sincerely warning the people that if they got what it was that they wanted, that things would not end well for them. And just as Everything that God says comes true, that came true, that warning came true as well. They chose the king, uh, Salt, to be their king, and things did not end well. His reign was an absolute disaster. See, God had a completely different plan. God's desire and choice for king was David. He wanted David to be on that throne. He was a man after his own heart. And so here in chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, we finally see him come to the throne and what we see here is, is we don't see what the kingdom of man looks like. We get just a small glimpse of what the kingdom of God looks like. Now, let me explain what I mean by the kingdom of God. Sometimes that can be a little bit confusing. When I talk about the kingdom of God, we're not talking about a specific place that you can locate on a map. We're not talking about a particular specific territory marked by boundaries or borders. Uh, the kingdom of God is the invisible kingdom of God. It's the rule and reign of, of God in the hearts and lives of his people. Every man, woman, and child who has placed their faith in him, it's where the kingdom of God reigns. And so what we understand is that this is a glimpse. All, all the way through the Bible, we get these little glimpses of what God's kingdom is like. We get little hints. Let me give you a couple of those hints. Romans 14, 7 tells us that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Spirit. So that's, that's, what, that's what the kingdom of God is like. We're told again in the book of Daniel chapter 2, 44, that the kingdom of God can never be destroyed told in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, that we are told that the poor in spirit are those who inherit the kingdom of God. Then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, it tells us that you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are first born of water and of the Spirit. And so what this is doing, what 2 Samuel chapter 2 is doing, is it's getting, giving us just more information of what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. What it looks like in, in submitting to God and to, and to follow his lead in, leading and follow his guidance and to understand what our responsibility is and what it looks like for you and I to live out underneath the lordship of God. And so we see just two things in the text this morning. I know that's very unbaptist of me for only having two points and not three, but we have only two points this morning, two marks of what it looks like to live within the kingdom of God. Point number one is this, the kingdom of God requires reliance. The kingdom of God requires reliance. Look, if you will, in the very first verse, we see this phrase that begins, after this. That, 
It refers to the time immediately after David hears about the death of Saul and his sons. And while we're reading through this, if we had read all the way through chapter 1, beginning of, or all, all the way through 1 Samuel, getting into 2 Samuel, what we would presume as readers is that now is the time for, for David to, to take himself over to Israel and to be able to take his rightful place on the throne. That's what the reader presumes is going to happen. And there's no doubt that's what David would have wanted. He's been wanting it all of this time to, to be able to get back to Israel. He misses home all this time. He's been stuck out in Ziklag. I mean, who wants to live in Ziklag, right? He lives in Ziklag, which isn't even an Israel, Israelite territory. It's, 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 it's under the rule of the Philistines. He wants to be there more than anything, but he doesn't presume that he is now to take the throne or to be able to go to Israel at all. So what our presumption is, he's not nearly as presumptuous to think that he knows exactly what it is that God wants him to do. He knew that what he wanted, what he wanted, how he wanted it, and, and when he wanted it does not always match up to the when, to the what, to the when, and the hows of God. Have you ever noticed that? What I want may not always be what God wants. When I want it is not always when God wants it. How I want it to come about is not always how God wants it to come about. David recognizes this. It's clear to him. And so instead of just diving in, doing what he thinks he wants to do, he seeks God. The Bible, he says that he inquired of the Lord. What that means is that he sought God's divine guidance and he allowed God, note this, to either affirm or overrule his own intentions. He sought God to allow him to be able to either affirm what he wanted or to ultimately overrule what he ultimately wanted. This is what the Bible says. He says, he inquired of the Lord, shall I go into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. And so here what we see is, again, him relying upon God. It's not exactly really his first choice. It's not exactly what he would ultimately want to do, but it is what God wants. And what's interesting here is we don't even know how God answers him. We don't know. It could be from 1 Samuel. It could be back then he would always seek Abiathar, the high priest, and he would ask God's, um, God's wisdom or, or direction, and he would always determine it by this practicing of casting lots. That could be what's going on here, but we just don't know. What we know is God was clear. He told him exactly where he was supposed to go, and where God wanted him was in this city of Hebron, not in Hebron, not in Israel, but in a completely different place. He wanted him in Judah. Now, it's not that Judah is a bad place, and it's not that Hebron was a bad city. In fact, it was a sentimental city. It was where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah had been buried. It wasn't a bad place at all. It just wasn't Jerusalem. You guys know that, right? You, you go out and you're like, we well, need to buy a car and this is the car that I want. And, and, and you're like, but I don't have money for that car. So you buy the other car. And people are like, how do you like your car? And you're like, it's great, but it's not you know, the other car. This, this is kind of what's going on here. He says, Hebron's great, but it's, it's no Israel. This is not what I truly want. But what he did not understand at the time is that it may not have been the place that he wanted to be, but it was the perfect place for him to be, the perfect place that God wanted him to be. Now, you sit there and say, where do we get that in the text? Well, we get it all over the place, first of all, in understanding what this city was. It was a place 
a city of refuge. Now, understand why this would be important. People just found out that Saul was dead. Many people immediately, especially those who followed Saul, would think that David was behind this because these two have been at it all of this time. So he needed to go to a safe place. Israel was not a safe place at this time. If he were to go there, somebody would enact vengeance on him and kill him. Instead, God said, you need to be in a safer place. That place is the city of refuge, which is Hebron, which would have been a regular city when people were condemned of murder, falsely accused of murder, could go to the city, they would find protection there, and nobody could mess with them until they got to the bottom of what actually happened. So it was actually, wasn't his first choice, but it seemed like the perfect choice. Not only that, we see a couple other details, and I don't want to bore you with this, but just notice how perfect this place was. It was a Calebite city. That simply just means that when the Israelites entered into the promised land, that, that all of these different areas and all these different cities were divided up with those people who were part of the Israelite, all, all part of those different tribes. And Caleb had inherited a piece of land. Guess what he inherited? This particular city. And guess what else? David, one of his wives, don't ask me why he had so many wives. That's a whole other story, sermon for another time. But one of his wives was actually a widow of a Calebite. So when he comes into the city, according to their laws and customs, if they were a part of the family, they had to take them in, not only the person that was family, but also everybody else that was with them. So they would have been accepted by the people within the city. And not only that, but also with David would have also been this high priest that I mentioned earlier, Abiathar. And it just so happens that Hebron had been made a city for all of the priests, all the Aaronic priests lived there right in that city. So when he comes Comes in, of course, he and everybody that was with him would have been received with open arms into this particular city. Again, here's the point. This might not have been the very place that David's heart desired, but it was the very place that God have, had for him at the time because it was the very best for him. And the way that, we, that David's reliance upon God is demonstrated and that first of all, before he went anywhere or did anything, he sought the will of God, even over what it was that he wanted himself. That's demonstrating reliance. You know what else demonstrated his reliance? Is that when God gave him direction that was different than what his heart wanted, he did it. That's demonstrating the reliance of God. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Do we show this kind of reliance? We are citizens of the kingdom of God. Do we trust God that God knows what is truly best for us even when his plans don't quite match up with our own? Do we pray prayers like David seeking God's divine guidance to either affirm or overrule his intentions? Many times I do not. Here's how my prayer does. Don't look at me so spiritually because you pray the same way. Here it is. God, this is what I want. I really want you to give it to me. I don't even ask, God, if this be your will most of the time. Most of the time, I'm just like, hey, this is what I want. God, give it to me. And if I don't get it, you know what I do? I get upset. What went wrong? What happened? Why wouldn't God give me such a good thing? And I, and I end up getting hurt and, and confused and even begin to question even the love of God for me. That, that's, that's very normal for us. But what it does, it demonstrates a lack of reliance upon God. Now, I know that many of you are married, and many of you will be married. Some of you may have the gift of singleness. But if you're married, I have a, um, let me say this, uh, if you're married, uh, I have a feeling that you, the one that you married was probably not the only person you ever dated. Am I right in, in that? Now, I, can, I can't say that. I, I dated other people before I met my wife. 
my wife never really dated any other guys except for me. She saw me, and she goes, I got to have that. And so she goes, that's it. That, that, that's got to be, I don't, even have to, I don't even have to shop around anymore, all right? And so that's the story I tell. It's not really the one she tells, but uh, it's the reality that I live within. And so, but, but I, I would date these other people. And let me say this in case somehow, some way I ever meet one of these wonderful ladies again. They were all wonderful girls. They, very godly girls, very nice. I'm sure they are making amazing wives, amazing moms, okay? I, I, there's no doubt about that to me. But I do know enough about this that if I had married them, it would have been a disaster, I had people everywhere telling us, especially this one particular girl, basically telling us, hey, look, I, I just got to let you know, she's wonderful, you're wonderful, but you guys are not wonderful together. You are awful. We had her family, my family, saying, you all don't need, you don't need to be near each other. This is not a good thing. And so I would love to be able to say that I took godly counsel, but I did not. Instead, here's what I begin to do. These people just don't understand us. They, have you ever been there before? You ever talk, you ever, you, have you known these people? Maybe you were one of them. Everybody sees it except for you. And you're sitting there sitting back and going, no, I'm going to marry this young girl. Yes, I am. Here was my prayer, and I'm embarrassed to be able to say this, just being transparent with you. I literally sat there and said, God, I don't care if this is your perfect will for me. This is what I want. I want her. I don't care what else I'm missing out on. This is who I want. The very next day, she called up, and she goes, you know what? I think we need to break up. She goes, I, I, she, goes, she goes, all night, I just was restless all night, and God just told me that we're not right together. He wants me to break up with you. L let me give you some advice, <laughs> just very quickly. If you're going to break up with somebody, if you're, if you're dating, if you do that kind of thing, you date, you do whatever, however, whatever you want to call it, courting, dating, whatever it is, and, and, and you decide and you come to the point where you realize that that's not the person that you're supposed to marry and you're trying to get out of it, don't blame it on God. Okay, here's why we do that. Because it's one thing for me to be rejected by her. It's another thing to think now I've been rejected by God, right? And so just basically tell them, hey, man, I don't think it's the right thing. Hey, there's, be there's better fish in the sea. I'm leaving you alone. Go the back way. But here's what happened. I literally went through a period of depression, period of darkness, period of feeling lost, sadness, couldn't understand, doubting God's love, doubting all of these things. But do you understand that had nothing to do with God? It had everything to do with my lack of reliance? It had everything to do with me sitting there going, God, not, this is what I want, but not my will, but your will be done? has everything to do with me sitting there, him choosing and making the choice and leading me and directing me by his sovereign grace and me not sitting there and going, okay, that's your choice? I'm okay with that. Why? Because I know that you are a good and loving father. I know that you are a good God. You see that? And so, look, there's, there's all kinds of times that we go and we make these type of decisions and we're, 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 we're wrong and we're devastated, but it's because we're not entrusting ourselves to him. If you are a follower of Christ, if you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, if you are a member of God's kingdom, listen to me, as your pastor, rely on him. Rely on him. Pray continually and in everything for God's will to be done. As much as you want it, Sit back and go, God, I want this desperately, and, and everything in me wants this, but I know enough that know, to know that, that your when and where and how is often different than my when, where, and how, and I'm going to fully rely on you, first of all, by bathing everything in prayer to you, to let you be Lord of my life, and number two, when you choose something that is not my, my first choice, that I will revel in your goodness. 
That's what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. You know what it looks like to be out of the kingdom of God? To just not really call God on anything. Just not really ask him for what his will is. Not really be able to seek him. Not really to be able to determine, to determine whatever happens in my life for us to be disgruntled and be sad and be disappointed. That looks, that's what it looks like outside of the kingdom of God. But unfortunately, so many of God's people look exactly like that. It's because there is not a reliance on God where we come and say, not my will, but your will be done. And whatever it is that happens, we know that you are ultimately behind. And wherever it is that you place me, it is the very best place for me, just like for David, even if I don't see it at the particular time. That's what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. First of all, reliance. Number two, wow, we're halfway through. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Merry Christmas to you. Oh, you of guile and sin and whatever. Anyway, number two, another sermon. Number two, the kingdom of God calls for risk. Not only requires reliance, but it calls for risk. Look at verse four. It says, when they told David that it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. Now, we've got to stop there because we've got to unpack that. Who are these men of Jabesh Gilead and why in the world would they bury Saul? To know that, you have to go back to 1 Samuel. When you go back to 1 Samuel, you find in, in chapter 31 that it was actually after the Philistines killed, um, killed um, Saul and his sons, they basically displayed them by nailing them to the wall on the city of Bethshan. Two reasons they would do this. Number one is to be able to shame Saul and his kingdom. The other would ultimately be able to let everybody have a warning, let them know, don't mess with us, because this is what happens with people who mess with us. And so here we find out that while they are placed on this wall for all to see, what happens is these men of Bashan, under, under the cover of night, take a 20-mile round trip, kind of secret reconnaissance, reconnaissance mission, where they go and they take, the, in the cover of night, take the bodies off, take them back with them, to their city, and they bury them into the ground and give them a proper burial. Now, the question is, why is that? When you go further back in the book of 1 Samuel, when Saul was first king, one of the very first things that he did was rescue the, the city of Jabesh-Gilead. There was a horrible tyrant king by the name of Nahash who had encircled their entire city and was going to wipe out every man, woman, and child. They had a person that escaped and was able to be able to come and bring news to the newly crowned king, Saul, and they told him, come and rescue us, and he did. He came and he rescued them, and now, because of that, they were forever grateful to that king who had rescued them. And so when David comes and he hears about what they do and the respect that they show to Saul, he, he actually sends out messengers. Verse 5, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Important thing again, understanding the context of 1 and 2 Samuel to keep in mind is if you were to go back through that story, you would find that many times people are helping David along the way to his place on the throne. And whenever he, people were nice and gracious and giving to him during this time of need, he always promised that he would repay them. He would always promise that he would always look after the rest of their family, that he would be kind to them. And so a little bit of what he was doing there is happening here. But it's different, and you see the difference. The difference is, it, is that Saul can't repay the people for the kindness that they showed them, can he? Why? Well, he's dead. 
kind of hard to show kindness with that. It's hard to send a letter or an email or whatever it is. So he's dead. So what David does is he takes the place of that king, and he in essence says, I will do for you what Saul normally would do for you. I am going to treat you with grace and mercy, and I'm going to be good for you. So he, he, he's, he, he sends a message to thank them, but there's more to it than that. This isn't just about sending and passing along pleasantries. This was also an invitation. It was an invitation for them to now take the allegiance that they once showed to one king and now change it and now follow him and show allegiance to him and to his kingdom. But David knows that this was risky for them. He knew the moment that he shared it with them, they were going to sit back and they were going to pause on this and they were going to have to think about this. Why? Because you're not allowed to change teams, okay? You can't just because Alabama lost, you can't go from being an Alabama fan to a Clemson fan. All right, you can't do that. All Alabama fans. I mean, I saw just these daggers just now when I said that. But there's so rarely we could talk about Alabama losing. You got to bring it up into a sermon every once in a while, right? And so, so, the idea, so the idea is you can't just do one from the other. You can't be a Boston Celtic and then become an L.A. Laker, right? You can't be a Yuli Hornet and then all of a sudden become, you know, well, my son did that, uh, Fernandina. But anyway, you, you can't do that because everybody's going to hate you for doing that. You can't do it. Well, here the problem is, is if you, lose, if you leave this kingdom, these rival kingdoms from Saul, and you go over, they understand that it may very well require their life. And that's what's going to happen. If you look back at verse 8, people are still trying to keep Saul's kingdom going. Abner, who was not only the commander of Saul's army, but also his cousin, he decides that he's going to take the last remaining son of Saul, and he's going to anoint him to be king. And now he's the king of Israel, not David. And so he understands that there is going to be this great risk. When you move from one kingdom and choose to follow the other kingdom, your life is at risk. This is what he says in verse 7. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Here's what David's saying. He's saying, you can't follow him as king anymore because he's dead. He can't look after you, and he can't be good to you because he's dead. I'm extending you an invitation to now a king who is good, and I will treat you with goodness. This is a very much a picture of the gospel. He's saying coming to Jesus Christ is a call to risk, but the risk is worth it. The reward that we receive because of the risk is, is worth it. That's what he's trying to do. It's a picture of salvation. Before we are born again, listen very carefully, we are a part of the kingdom of this world led by Satan himself. It is a kingdom that requires absolute allegiance. Uh, but, but the call of salvation is a call to turn our back on that old kingdom, back on that old king, back on our own ways, and to turn with absolute allegiance to the new king, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The problem is that the old kingdom does not like you and I turning our back on it lightly. Becoming part of the kingdom of God comes at a risk that those that we once left will now turn on us and look for our demise. This risk can include, and Jesus says it, Jesus tells the people, before you come, consider the risk. He actually says, consider the cost. 
He says, the world that you once served will turn on you. Your friends might alienate you, and your family might very well abandon you. It may cost you success in the workplace. It may cost you a position on a sports team. It may cost you popularity. It may cost you a love in your life. A lot of risk, but the reward is worth it. Let's face it. There's one thing I want to correct about this. It's not as old as the, the old kingdom, and the old king of that kingdom was ever really for us to begin with. The old kingdom and the devil would love for you and I to think that he's looking after our best interest. He loves to promise freedom, but he only provides what? Death. That's it. When I was um, in World War II, I can't say I, when I was because I wasn't around in World War II. So, in World War II, there were concentration camps all across Europe. One of them that I'd visited while I was in college uh, was called Auschwitz Concentration Camp. Two million Jews had been exterminated in Auschwitz, and uh, it was basically uh, really told it was a work camp is what they called it. Really, it was an extermination camp. It was really a way in which it was a part of the, uh, of the Nazis' final solution, that they called it, of how to ultimately annihilate the Jewish people from, and their race from the world. And so what they would do is they would pack all of these Jewish people from all these different countries into these cattle cars, and they would ship them there to Auschwitz concentration camp. And they would be packed in, standing room only for days, horrible, horrible conditions. And they would open up these doors. But when they opened up these doors, what they saw and what they heard was very pleasant. There was actually an orchestra that was sitting there, and people were playing and playing this wonderful, up, uplifting music. And you can imagine how nurturing that must have been. And as they began to work their way kind of down a ramp, they would go through this gate. And across the gate, gate written in, in, in German, was Albich McFry, which means work brings freedom. And what they were trying to do is to convince these people, you're in a good place. This is a way. You work for us. You will ultimately have freedom but what we want you to do before you enjoy that freedom is we want you to come over here and just shower off a little bit. It's important that we're all clean, that we don't bring contamination into the place itself. And then we'll go on to work and we'll see better days. But little did most of them know and through the music and through the promise on the gate is that when they entered into the showers, they were no showers at all. They were gas chambers in which two, and two million people died within them. So here's the picture. Understand this as a believer in Jesus Christ. Our enemy of the old regime, old king that you and I served, apart from Jesus Christ, wanted us to believe that he was all about our freedom, but he was nothing except all about our death. That is what he wanted with us. No life, no joy, no happiness, no peace, death, death and more death. That's all he is ultimately about. But the kingdom of God is not like that. In both kingdoms, we are servants. You're either going to be either a servant of that king or a servant of the king. That's the only choice. You're like, I don't like to serve. Tough. That's your choices. Those are the two places that we go. So we have a choice when we, in salvation and when we hear the gospel, either to accept or reject. One, two different masters, one that is led by a king that promises freedom but gives us death, or the other king that offers us freedom and gives us life. And I don't mean just eternal life. I mean life and more abundantly in the here and now. This is the king and what he offers. 
And so there's a risk of losing something temporally. Do you understand that? When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's some young people who would even say, but if I, if I come to Christ, I may lose some popularity. I may not be who I was. People may not like me. No, that's the risk. I may come to faith in Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden, my very wife within the relationship may be like, you're a crazy man. I don't want anything to do with you. That's a risk. But what the Bible always promises us is, what is this temporal risk and this temporal loss as nothing to be compared to what you gain by coming to faith in Christ? Even when we're talking about losing family and friends, Matthew 19, 29 says this. It says, And everyone who has left houses and brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold not only in this land, but in the land to come. Not only in this place, but in the place to come. Paul says it like this in Romans 8:18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What he's saying is there's risk, but when you understand who Christ is and how good he is and how gracious he is, the risk is very minimal. It's very fleeting. It really doesn't mean anything at all. It's kind of like the song that we sang. It may be painful for a moment, but what God has for us is so much greater than any risk or any loss that we may ultimately incur. This is what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. And it's not only when you first come to faith in Christ, it's all through our walk of Christ. Every day, you know this as well as I do. There's decisions that you and I have to make, right? We have to make every day. And oftentimes when we're going to make that decision, there is something that we want so desperately. Would you agree? Your flesh wants it. You want it. And usually it is something that is not right sometimes, at least if we're in our flesh. And what we think is if we don't get this thing that our flesh wants, we're going to lose out. If we do what God says, things may not turn out to be the way that I ultimately want to turn out. Are you following me with this? And, and you sit there and you, and you find yourself in this particular situation and we make that decision. Let, let, me, let me just say this. You are always going to think and the enemy is always going to tell you that you will miss out on something great. Here's what I want to hear you, you, to, you to understand. You will miss out on nothing great. Nothing great. Let me... Explain it to you this way, and we're going to close. Your favorite words, and we'll close. Whoever clapped earlier. Favorite. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Remember this? They talk about how they fought like in their mother's womb. I'm like, yeah, that's typical, right? They're fighting, and one wants to be born first. And, and the whole reason for that is because whoever was born first basically had it made, right? And some of you are like, that's right, especially if you're a middle child right now. Yeah, they got it where they got that. And so, so he was born first. And that basically meant is that you got all the inheritance, and, and if you were basically second or third born, well, you know, good luck, good luck with that. All right, you know, go out and work, and hopefully everything goes okay. But big brother gets everything. He gets the birthright. So you understand why they would be arguing for this even in the womb, all right? And so what happens is one day, understand the difference between the two. Um, um, uh, uh, Jacob is basically a mama's boy. He loves to be at home, loves to cook, all right? And uh, loves to cook, loves to just hang out with mom. Uh, the other guy, uh, for, to give you a picture, Esau, he's a rugged mountain man. He's, he's like me. Just think me. Um, out there, you know, in the tree, swaying, you know, you know, coming in with, 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 with the food over my shoulder, coming in. I provide for family. Huh? Throw it down. Little brother, now make it into a soup. Right? And so you, you do this kind of thing. Well, he's out one day. Esau's out, and he is, he's, 
he's just, he's, he's tired, and he comes in, and he, he begins, if you read the story, you know he's got to be over-exaggerating. He comes in, he goes, I'm famished, I'm going to die. If I don't eat something, I'm going to die, little brother, give it to me. Little brother's sitting there, and he's stirring, he goes, well, well I got some bean soup. You want some bean soup? Oh, I've got to have that bean soup, man. I'm going to die if I don't get that bean soup. I need it. Everything in me needs that bean soup. And he sits there and says, well, I'll give you my bean soup, but you've got to give me your birthright. Now, any of us that sit there and go, what an idiot. What an idiot. Of course he's not going to take that. And he sits there and goes, okay, I'll give everything. Just give me the bowl of soup. Just give me the bowl of beans. And he gives him this thing. And, and we sit back and we go, how in the world can somebody be so idiotic? But my friend, and I, I say this with as much love as I possibly can, you and I are as much idiots when you and I think that anything that the devil is trying to present to us is worth anything other than a bowl of beans. And when we choose what the devil has for us over what God has for us, you and I are choosing those devils over, choosing those, that's right, you're choosing those devils, choosing those beans, that bowl of beans over your and my birthright. And the second and the opposite is just as true. When you and I reject what the devil has to offer and we wait and we rely on God and we risk all of that, then that means we give all up a bowl of beans for the birthright that God has intended for you and I, all that God has for you and I. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, we thank you, and we give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. We thank you for your word. God, we know that really our birthright that we have is not because of the order of birth, but because we have been born.